I think the current influence that Iceland has over gender policies have a lot to do with the banking crisis. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today I am joined by Igor Bjarnason. He is an Icelandic journalist based in Reykjavik. His work has appeared in publications ranging from the New York Times to National Geographic. He is also the author of a great book titled How Iceland Changed the World, The Big History of a Small Island. The Caribbean and Iceland are often not brought together, but I think there is lots of things that the Caribbean countries can learn from Iceland. But with that said, I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hi, Eagle, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Delighted to be here. So I'm going to start with a very easy question. What is the main concern of cooking with seawater? That the water is too salty. <laughs> It needs to be diluted with a lot of melting water from icebergs. So it's only in a very few places where you have enough ice melting into the sea that you can actually use the sea to cook with, like pasta, for instance, where you want some salt, but not too much, or bread. And yeah, very, very rare. So where then is the best place to get seawater appropriate for cooking? I would think in a like a glacier lagoon or in a fjord like the one in Greenland uh, where I've been sailing a lot where there's where the glaciers run into the sea calf into the sea Is there a particular like I say extra benefit of cooking with seawater or is it just out of need at that point in time Yeah just for the fun of it because salt is not that expensive <laughs> that you're saving anything from that but of course when you're on sea when we were used to you cook this seawater bread that you're referring to you don't have an endless resource of water if you would be cooking a lot then yeah it would might save you some work yeah So you mentioned in the book that your parents owned a bookshop did they own the bookshop when you were very young or was that more recent owning When I moved out the house, they decided to start the bookstore. <laughs> They've had it for now almost 15, 20 years or so, and it's a small store in a little town called Selfoss by the Ring Road. Ring Road is this road number one that kind of looks the island and is popular among those who tour or travel around Iceland. And it's been managed to thrive in part because of tourism, book sales here as everywhere have have changed a lot in the past 20 years and but because this store is now popular among tourists it's able to survive in that small town i read somewhere that one out of 10 icelandic people publish books i'm not sure how accurate that is but i've seen other corroborating information about that is that at all true i have read that too and i think it at least has some truth to it whether it's really really that many it is a surprising number of the population so the total population i think if we talk about if you narrow it down to one of 10 of adults today for instance it is one of maybe 250,000 people or something that are adults and i used to work in my parents bookstore and we would sell secondhand books as well and people could order them online they would go on the roster and order some title that was published 20 years ago and i kept 
being surprised by who had published the book. I found myself digging up some old copies of a book written by a person who I know today as being like a middle manager in a shoe company or like a really mundane job. At some point in their life, they had published a book about a work of fiction or cooking or whatever. What do you think accounts for that? Because that's a very peculiar situation for a country to be in. I think there are two reasons for this writing mania, if you could call it that. The two reasons are, first of all, just our legacy of writing books. It is one of the oldest profession in Iceland is to write texts in Old Norse and then later on interpret those texts after the Old Norse died out. And this has always been a national pride. And we are a cold place. So in the past, staying indoors in the winter and writing and reading out loud to everyone who was stuck inside with you was the sort of main pastime on farms. Now, the second reason and the reason that this tradition has been kept alive is we have a strong government support system for the arts, not just writers, but the entire spectrum of art, because we realize that in a small language zone, you need to correct for a small market. So that's how Iceland is able to have all these writers who apply for a grant and then they get paid the monthly salary for a project. It's very competitive, but it still is able to at least sustain these sort of professional writers. Yeah, because it seems like broadly conceived Scandinavian welfare state systems that Iceland has a, from the outside, has a focus on artistic achievement. Even in music, there are many contemporary classical Icelandic composers and the proportion of that to the population is surprisingly high. And then also now the Iceland Symphony Orchestra is having a world boom in some ways. And all that coming from a very small country is very unlikely to say the least. And I think, of course, yeah, there is, there's probably, we, Iceland as a society values art and has respect for it. So a lot of people pursue it and, or do it in their past time. And, but it's also, I think, because it is, you say that it's surprising and it's, it's surprising because it is the country the size of a town in Europe, but it is the language itself that keeps the brain drain from happening. So if you would take a place somewhere in England that had the population of Iceland, all of the artists there had moved to London. While in Iceland, this doesn't happen because it's the language that keeps these artists to collaborating within Iceland. So I think that plays a big part. If someone wanted to start reading Icelandic literature, would it be best to start with Laxness or something else or some other writer? Halldór Laxness is a great Icelandic author. He got the Nobel Prize in 1955 and he was this really big persona in Icelandic life during his lifetime. He was political and was had uh, an amazing talent to stir up debate. And so we hold him in really high regard. But his books, they're not the best, they're not the most accessible for someone who really wants to get to know Iceland, I think. But certainly will, I think, bring you into the mood of remote Iceland, especially his most famous ones called Independent People. 
So then what authors are couple of books should people read if they want to jump into understanding that's a contemporary Icelandic lit scene I read a book by Andre Magnuson I believe his name was so who would you recommend people to read if you want to read a contemporary Icelandic literature you read the book by Andre Magnuson and it is interesting that was probably a non-fiction book that's right but a lot of the books that come out of Iceland that are translated are novels. And that has in some part to do with this government grant system. It supports the art in a sense that writing fiction is pure art, but excludes nonfiction in some way. So we don't have this sort of creative nonfiction genre, or at least not really successfully. So the books I can recommend that have been translated are mostly work of fiction. And I just finished reading a book that recently came out in English called The Fires by Sigrid Hagalin. She published this book one year before an eruption started near Reykjavik. And it is dystopian sort of story about an eruption happening in near Reykjavik. So the timing was really interesting. And now as we're speaking, this part of Iceland is rumbling again. There are several other sort of modern books like Miss Iceland, this one by Öder Ava, which captures the, some ways, the era of the late 20th century Iceland and the role of women at the time. Hallgrimur Helgason is another really favorite writer of mine who he writes this sort of really lively and funny prose. One of his books is called The Hitman's Guide to Housekeeping or something like that. It describes an international assassin who lands in Iceland, the safest country on earth, and is stranded there and just has to learn to become Icelandic. <laughs> and it's comic and, and yeah, I could go on and on. We have a lot of good novelists. There is a discussion in your book, and I found it quite curious. Let me ask this question. Did an Icelandic volcano contribute to the French Revolution? Yeah, this is one of the... So my book, How Iceland Changed the World, it tries to connect or weave Iceland's history to famous world events. And this is the pedestrian knowledge in Iceland. That's what sort of the tour guides in Iceland have told people for a long time is that Iceland or an, a volcanic eruption in Iceland contributed to the French Revolution because as we know, the French Revolution was prompted by poverty or an increased poverty. People couldn't afford grain anymore. So the queen told them to eat cake and so forth. And the reason for this crop failure in part was kind of corruption in Southern Iceland that had this really apocalyptic effect across the Northern Hemisphere and caused the climate to cool for about three years because the sort of fog over the sun was so strong, it probably led to famines as far as Egypt and was, of course, devastating for Iceland, but yeah, the entire world. And an historian would be careful to say that it has caused the French Revolution because it happened six years later, but it may have most likely contributed and at least in a sense that it would have happened later. There were other factors that caused the French Revolution, French involvement in North America, where they had overspent on military. There were a lot of factors, and I discussed it in the book, and my answer is maybe, at least a little. 
There is another chapter in the book that one of the set pieces about the uh, formation of Israel. Now, that in itself is particularly interesting, but what I found more revealing that chapter was the family cartel nature of Icelandic politics and business with the Thor's family and so on. How prominent is that family still in Iceland? I would say very prominent. The richest man in Iceland is Björkolur Thor's. He is from that family. But family dynasties have changed a lot with changes in the economy. I am speaking to you today from a small fishing town. And it used to be that kind of the fishing, the families who owned the biggest boats, the trawlers and the quotas in, for, for fishing, they would rule every town. But now a lot of small towns don't rely as much on fishing. They maybe rely on tourism a lot or something totally different. So that has broken down a lot of power or diluted power within Iceland and within smaller communities. It sounds like a very similar situation like somewhere like South Korea, where it's just so there are very few small families. So when it comes to politics in Iceland, is it a very common discussion about the rich families still controlling politics or people feel it's still a very equally democratic country living? Unlike somewhere like South Korea, where everyone knows it's controlled by a few families. No, I think that this is a political question. You might ask it and someone would say, we are one of the most equal countries in the world economically. If you look at this sort of, what's it called, the Gini scale, it is the, one of the most even in Iceland. And that in, is in part because people in low-skilled jobs have relatively high salaries compared to the rest of Europe. And another person would look at the top and say the richest people in Iceland, they do have a lot of sway in part because they have enormous amount of money and the country is small. So you can do a lot. You can you can run an entire media company or newspaper that reaches the entire population and so forth. And we've had an enormous economic success in the past 10 years or so, in part thanks to tourism and new sectors like the tech industries. And that has accumulated wealth in a lot of places, especially in terms of property and property prices. One of the other things that Iceland is, at least these days, known for a lot is in terms of this idea of, let's say, gender equality. That's a big topic when Iceland comes up very high on. What do you think accounts for that? I do know that Iceland had the first female head of state and she was the in charge for 16 years back in 1980 to 96. That was obviously a very curious thing. But what do you think accounts for this as a tendency towards more gender equality, even sexual orientation equality in Iceland? I think the current influence that Iceland has over gender policies have a lot to do with the banking crisis. I'm not sure if you remember that Iceland became a symbol of the 2008 financial crisis. Tried their hand international banking. When we liberalized the banks, they were government-owned for a long time. They were sold almost overnight to this really bold businessman who took incredibly risky decisions that all came down in the aftermath of global credit crisis. And when that kind of crisis happened, which was not just a financial crisis for Iceland, but also in some sense an identity crisis, because it hurt the national mood or national pride. And when that happened, 
when that sort of crisis happened, the ideas lying around, new ideas that are lying around are easy to move forward. And gender policies or policies that made, for instance, made it harder for companies to have male-only boards and a lot of these sort of gender quotas and made it harder for wage discrimination. They came into effect after this crisis and they're the most lasting effect of the financial crisis. And why is that? I think Icelanders saw that, I think they realized this sort of the arguments of these policies and they also saw a way to increase their soft power in some ways because the Scandinavia or the Nordics, they have always been, they've also been respected for gender equality, but with Iceland inventing or pushing forward policies that are even more progressive than in Scandinavia, they became the authority on how to improve. And the main reason other leaders want to copy Iceland is not necessarily because they care for women. Sure, they do that, but they see that it is economically very sensible. Iceland has the highest participation for women in the workforce, but also has ranks really high on gender equality and satisfaction in life. So this is a really ideal thing if you're thinking about your economy and you wanted to run productively, that every citizen is taking part. But so how do you activate some of the women in your economy is to thinking and for other countries. So that's why they're looking to Iceland for the policies that Iceland has pushed forward. Has the birth rate decreased in Iceland in the last decades or so, or is it same as before? No, the birth rate has decreased in Iceland as everywhere in Europe, I believe, but it remains right below replacement rate. I think it's like 1.8 today or so, which is still high for a lot of countries, but women are starting later in life to have children and they have fewer. But the population is growing very fast because of immigration. Where is the highest number of immigrants coming from? Other European countries or outside EU? No, it is definitely other European countries because we are part of the economic area of Europe. So we're not part of the EU, but we're part of this economic area, meaning that there is a free movement of labor or nationals of the EU, along with Norway and Switzerland. And most immigrants come from Poland, like statistically. And But we are now in the past recent years, we've been seeing a lot of newcomers from Spain and Italy, just getting more diverse. Ukraine, of course, in the last year. And I should not be saying statistics from the top of my head because I might get them wrong, but in the age category, in the young age category of these are of 20 to 35 years old, I think the number of foreign-born people in the workforce is about 35%. So it is really high. And the total percentage of of foreigners make up 20% of the total workforce and it is only growing. So it's changing the landscape a lot. I read somewhere that the young children in Iceland are not learning as much Icelandic language as before. Does that seem plausible to you? You could say that as a fact, yeah, that the young people today are much better than young people of my generation. I, I guess I'm from this, I'm a millennial and, and I did not speak the level of English that young people do today because they are exposed to it, not just in society, but also it, 
through their phones and computers. But then again, the, you need to, in some ways, know how to speak English if you're going grocery shopping or to the bakery when a lot of people are, don't, are migrants and speak English mostly. Is there a worry that Icelandic is going to become quite sparsely spoken in Iceland, let's say two generations? Yeah, I think it's a real worry. The Icelandic language is facing a lot of threats today. Technology is the biggest, just exposure to the Icelandic language is a lot less than it was when I was growing up, which is not that long time ago, but you would only watch Icelandic TV stations, for instance, at the time, and you would just speak Icelandic or hear Icelandic unless you went to the Blue Lagoon or something. And the way technology is advancing is in the direction of us users speaking or giving sort of verbal commands to technology more and more, whether it's some, where it's our phone or talking refrigerators or TVs or something like that. And I think that's just yet another threat to the language that it becomes, it faces this digital death in some ways and becomes useless in some part of everyday life. I know they're working on it, but a lot of the developments is something that's out of control, out of our reach. With regards to the immigration aspect again, has there to be any domestic pushback against the immigration of people into Iceland for permanent settlement and so on? You see Southern Europe, for example, is a big anti-immigration push these days. Is there anything similar in Iceland? Definitely not anything similar to what other countries have experienced, no. I think there's debate. The debate in Iceland is mostly involves refugees, whether to, or how many to welcome. But immigrants, in terms of people who are who move here freely to work, most people I think just see the benefits of keeping an open and border and a dynamic labor market. But I think it's the tension might rise in the future as a little more people feel like their language is under threat and is and so it's probably going to create more tension in the future, but it's not there on the surface today at least. Coming to the end of the conversation. If I want to visit Iceland, I actually do want to visit next year actually firstly when is the best time to visit and two beyond why to read in like a Reykjavik travel guide where should i go what should i do in iceland so the best time to visit is the summer that's uh, july and august are the warmest months uh, when you you can get really nice days but you can also get a lot of rain it's also the most expensive time to visit because that's when everyone else wants to visit <laughs> september i would say is a good choice as well. You may have slightly colder month, but most travelers to Iceland wear a jacket when they travel to Iceland anyway. We are always surprised by how well-dressed they are in what we call summer. But in September, it's cooler, but it's dark enough for the northern lights to appear. And late September, the hotel prices slide a bit, especially outside of the Reykjavik area. And the roads are safe. It's not a winter drive yet. And so you can do the ring road in, I would say, 10 days. Some people do it in seven days. And that Definitely stop in the northern Iceland where I am right now because that's my favorite region and get off the beaten path. It's, it's really easy to escape the crowds in Iceland. 
but it's also easy to just follow along and be at the top sites. But the north, to drive just along the coast on gravel roads and look north, look out to the sea and there's no land, it's an amazing adventure. Thank you so much, Eagle, for joining me on the podcast today. It was a really fun conversation about a country I don't yet know too much about. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. I will send you a recipe with seawater. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this episode. For updates about the podcast, please subscribe to our Substack blog found on cpfi.media. You can also read our newsletters and long-form content on Caribbean policy improvements. 